The latest revelations in the ongoing saga around China's interference in Canadian elections are that the communist regime supposedly worked to plant $1 million in the Trudeau Foundation's coffers. A new internal government report on perspectives on transgender women and women's sports has been unearthed, and its responses are intriguing. And the think tank is calling on Canadian governments to promote stable families as a key part of child well-being, along with other equality measures. Hello Canada, it's Wednesday, March 1st, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Anthony Fury. And I'm Rachel Emanuel. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. A new shocking report alleges that China had aimed to influence Justin Trudeau after he became the liberal leader in 2013 by facilitating a $1 million donation that went in part to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. The Globe and Mail first reported on Tuesday that CSIS intercepted a dialogue in 2014 between a political advisor to the Chinese government, Chinese billionaire Zhang Bin, a member of China's foreign promotion networks, and an official with China's Canadian consulates. During that conversation, it is alleged that the topic of the 2015 election came up and that the Chinese diplomat told Zhang to donate $1 million to the Trudeau Foundation with the promise that he would later be reimbursed by Beijing. This latest allegation comes on top of a series of Chinese election interference claims leveled against the Liberals, who are alleged to be the main beneficiaries of said operations. Rachel, I don't know where to start with this because there are so many breaking aspects, unfolding aspects to this. I understand we were initially told by the Prime Minister, well, don't worry, it's really not what it seems, and it's a bit racist to even be talking about this, so can we all move on? But based on what we're learning, no, we can't all move on, because a lot is still to come, it seems. No, this definitely isn't a story that we can just move on, and with this latest allegation is quite damning. Now we know that the Chinese government was influencing Canadian politics already back in 2013, so this has been spanning almost over a decade. So there's a lot of questions that need answering here. I think the government needs to do the right thing and put partisanship aside and say, okay, we're going to look at this. We're going to answer Canadians' questions as best we can with an investigation. Of course, you know, this is a national security issue. There's some things that can't be made public, but there's a lot of information that the public deserves to know. And this is already out in the public limelight now. This idea of we can't talk about it, we need to keep it hush-hush, it's, it's too late for that. It's time to move on and address some of the serious and concerning allegations that have been raised here. Yeah, and some of the very serious technical sort of gritty details of it are that when the story says that they intercepted a dialogue, well, what's going on here is there is wiretapping going on. So you have our national intelligence feeling like this is severe enough to even commence a wiretap in the first place, and they have kept files on this for many years, to feel like they had the legal wherewithal to be justified in doing this. And then in turn, by leaking this the way they have, coming on years after some of this began, they clearly feel there's a, a, a deep public need to do this because the people who leak these documents can actually be charged for what they have done. So they're not just looking to kick up partisan trouble or doing this for some laughs. There's clearly some very serious concerns and thinking going on here. Well, I think that's another really interesting part of the story, that there's actually sources within CSIS that are risking so much. They're not just risking their jobs, as you mentioned. They're actually risking being prosecuted for releasing these what are considered national secrets. 
And it's curious to think that they're releasing them, why they're releasing them now, and that they thought it was so important for the public to know. So as I said, I think there's a lot of investigation that needs to be done here. Canadians deserve answers. I hope that if the pressure continues, as I suspect it will, the government will eventually be forced to do the right thing and to pursue an investigation and to give Canadians those answers. Rachel, it's been interesting to see the response to this be so nonpartisan and that you have former Liberal Principal Secretary Gerald Butts weighing in saying, yes, we need an investigation. You have former diplomats. You have high-ranking academics. I mean, it's just an issue that is permeating all aspects of society. And I do feel like the Prime Minister right now is still in a sort of damage control mode where he's treating it as, oh, that darn Pierre Polyev uh, let's just flip it back on him. He's the one making all the noise about this. I know he's not outright saying this, but he's almost trying to play it like it's just a, a sort of generic 24-hour news story, uh, partisan gotcha moment thing. And it's just not at all. This doesn't at all come from someone like Pierre Polyev. It comes uh, clearly from much more sort of uh, nonpartisan sources. Yeah, when we see the prime minister saying discussing these types of concerns are racist, you know, I'm not really surprised to see that type of rhetoric from the prime minister. It's sort of his go-to when he doesn't know how to handle a difficult question. And to be honest, it's worked for him for a really, really long time. And he's seen success in that. People like to pick up his talking points, but I just don't think he's going to see the same type of success here. There's such an outrage over the stories and rightfully so. So I don't think this is something that's going away anytime soon. I don't think the way the prime minister has responded to it has led it to be a 24-hour news cycle. This is something the government is going to have to deal with in the coming weeks and likely even months to come headed up into whenever the next election is. I just don't see this issue going away soon. And there's going to be a lot of fear over the next federal election that there will be Chinese interference once again. And the government is going to have to answer and say, no, this is how we can ensure there's going to be no foreign interference in our election. And how are they going to answer that if they haven't even really addressed these questions to begin with? By a wide margin, elite female athletes have rejected the idea of allowing male-bodied athletes to compete in their women's sport. This comes from a Sport Canada Commission report, which the McDonald Laurier Institute think tank managed to obtain via an access to information request, and is written about by Mark Bonakowski in a recent True North column. First, 91.7% of the female athletes interviewed agreed that female athletes should have the right to compete in dedicated female sport categories in sex-affected sports. And when considering the scientific evidence, 88% agree that trans women or biological males have a competitive advantage over females. Plus, 88% of respondents also disagreed when asked if gender identities are more important than biological sex when deciding eligibility in high-performance sports. Anthony, this is such an important story today. This is something that I don't think can receive too much coverage. What we're really seeing is we're seeing the erasure of women's sports and women's rights in real times when we have biological men competing in women's sports and they just have a competitive advantage. We know that their bodies are different. It's not the same. It's not right that women should be competing against these males, but it's such a sensitive topic. And so many female athletes are unwilling to speak about this and they don't want to risk their spots on a sports team, even though, you know, they're not competing for the gold medal anymore. So I wasn't really surprised to see the results of this study. I just think it's sad that there aren't more women who are feel like they're able or who are willing to speak about this issue or even just stop competing in these sports, which they no longer can win in. But what's your take on this? 
92% of respondents. I mean, wow, that transcends any sort of partisan catchment. That obviously includes people all across the political spectrum who are saying, no, this stuff has just gone too far. And I think that's what this is about. It's about let's just be reasonable here. I imagine that if you interviewed these people and said, do transgender persons deserve basic respects, protections? Do they deserve to live free from discrimination and assault? You'd probably get 92% or, or more say, yes, absolutely, they deserve uh, those basic respects. But this is something very different here. It speaks to basic issues of fairness, which is actually what Caitlyn Jenner has said about this issue, that people know transparently that some of these matchups in the sports world just aren't fair anymore. That's exactly it. You're right in that if they was to do a survey, most people, you're right in that if there was another survey, most respondents, most female respondents would say, yes, absolutely, transgender people have the right to live their lives unimpeded and undiscriminated against. But now we've traded for undiscrimination as saying, well, we're going to force women to compete against biological men with a biological competitive advantage over a woman's body. And most people just aren't willing to touch this issue because it is so sensitive right now. And there's so much that you can't say about it nowadays. So it's sad that we are able to see through the study what we've known so long is that women are suffering, women's sports are suffering, and these female athletes know that they're suffering and they know that they're losing their chance at winning a national title or winning a gold medal. And it's really, really disheartening to see. I agree with you, but the only thing I guess I'd push back a little bit on is because we've got 92% in this direction, I think it's a signal to those people, uh, politicians, influencers, who are being cowed by a very small radical fringe minority into having these views that really are not about inclusion and are not really held by that many people. And, and I hope they sort of read the tea leaves and go, come on, let's course correct here. We obviously want to be uh, respectful and tolerant of everyone, but that's just not what's happening here. And I do think, Rachel, we're going to see a, a bit of a pendulum shift back to sanity on a number of these fronts soon. I hope that this survey has that type of response and that politicians see the results and they stand up and say, this is not right and we need to change and make action. But what I think is actually more impactful is when we have female athletes stand up and they say, this wasn't fair. This wasn't right. I lost my spot on the women's sports team because a biological male got it instead. Or when women just say, I'm not going to compete against a biological male because I know that it's not fair and I know that it's not right. I think those individual stories of individual female athletes are really impactful. Sometimes we just need to be able to put, you know, a face to the story and have someone sort of stand up and be the leader in that. So again, I think this survey is really sad. I hope that it does have those types of responses where politicians finally are willing to take a real look at this and discuss what the issue actually is, not what it's become about. But I don't know if we're going to see the pendulum swing until more people are willing to speak up and put their own story behind the impacts of what biological men competing in female sports is doing to them and doing to their lives. A report from the Canadian think tank Cardis using newly released census data shows that 60% of Canadian children live with married parents. And that think tank asserts that equality minded governments should work to increase that figure. Peter John Mitchell, the report's author, writes, stable family environments are correlated with better outcomes for children. Children in healthy, stable homes tend to be happier and healthier and to do better in school. Mitchell said governments that promote equality for children should promote stable, healthy marriages at home. Mitchell continued, given the benefits of healthy marriages, governments concerned about inequality should address barriers preventing young adults from forming stable marriages. Now, according to that Cardis report, the number of Canadians under the age of 15 that lived with parents was steadily declining for decades leading up to 2016, but that number has since held steady. Also in the new census data, roughly one in five children live with a single parent and about one in six live in unmarried common law families. 
Rachel, I think a lot of people rightly aren't interested in making judgments or statements about people's families and, and how they live. But I think there's something interesting to be said about the idea that if the data shows that we can have family stability, which is going to also show as a positive indicator towards uh, not moving towards crime, uh, having other sort of positive socioeconomic outcomes, well, then why not uh, encourage this in your government policies and the way you discuss matters? Sure. You know, this study is something that was, again, fairly obvious to me. But at the same time is very controversial to say nowadays. I think I even saw a couple years ago that critical race theory actually promotes the idea that nuclear families is somehow, you know, a white supremacist ideology or white ideology that's harmful. I think it's a great thing when you can have two parents in the home. And it makes sense that that would benefit the child because both parents just have a little bit more time for the children in most cases when there's two parents at home versus when there's one parent and usually they're working full time to provide for the children. There just isn't enough time to go around. Now, that's not to say anything against, you know, families that have single parents. That happens in a lot of circumstances. And you're absolutely right that people don't want to, you know, they don't want to judge a family. You don't know what someone's individual circumstances and you don't know what led them to be in that circumstance. So it's just not really right to comment on that. But I'm not surprised that seeing this study and seeing that two parents in the home is better for the children. It seems like something that we can all agree to support while at the same time acknowledging that when that's not possible, we need to support families that are doing it on their own, parents that are doing it on their own even more because they just have that much harder of a job. And it's unfortunate that all these other issues have to be brought into the conversation to make people so uncomfortable about it. I remember former President Barack Obama made a number of speeches actually about the importance of family stability, the importance of the role of the father in young people's lives. And those speeches never really got the traction, never got amplified the way that you would think they might in the way that uh, Obama's other speeches got amplified. And they were very powerful remarks. And uh, yes, we certainly don't want to be just judging people's lives for however they've come about to be the way they are. But at the same time, uh, if we can amplify other sort of social aspects, why not amplify this as well? Absolutely. And while we've said we don't want to make anyone feel judged or feel bad for their circumstance, I wonder what impact it could have on society if we were to encourage sort of this two-parent nuclear family model that is very traditional. Nowadays, when things get difficult, people are far too quick to turn to divorce. And if we were to say, you know, there is really ways that you can work through your marriage issues. Marriage counseling is an option. It is the best, it's the best option for your family if you can work things out. And we were to just encourage that a little bit more and really, you know, if we were just to encourage that a little more and make people aware that there is options that they can seek out to work on their marriage. But I think nowadays we've just sort of accepted when things get difficult, it's probably easier just to walk away. And I don't think that's the best option for the children. That's it for today. And don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.